The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, and I want to begin here in verse number 57, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse number 66, and these are the last verses before we come to the resurrection of Christ in chapter 28. So if you look at Matthew 27, and well, let's just stand for the reading of God's word again. Matthew 27 and verse number 56, when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first." Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Father, thank you for your word. Help us as we look into it today to preach uh, what you'd have our people to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In our study this morning, we're going to resume from where we were two weeks ago in our discussion of the burial of Christ. And this seems really to be the most overlooked part to these last few chapters of Matthew. Uh, we, we speak much about the cross of Christ, and we spend a great deal of time with that. Every Sunday morning when we meet here, it's a commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. But it seems like we never talk very much about the tomb or about the burial of Christ and what happened there. And of course, we know that Jesus had to be buried Um, He couldn't have risen from the grave if he hadn't actually been put there. uh, But you just don't really hear too many sermons about the importance of the burial. And and we're spending time with it in these two messages because there are no parts of the story of Jesus Christ that are superfluous. Two weeks ago at the end of the message, I spoke to you just a little bit about baptism. And most of you would think that baptism is very anticlimactic if what we did was to walk down into the water and then immediately walk back out. You would think, well, how strange that is. Why would you do that? As uh, my little granddaughter Jolie says, no, you've got to bathetize them. So that's what we do. We we take people into the baptistry, we put them under the water, we bathetize them, you might say, and we bring them up to show the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me catch you up just a little bit from the last message. It's hard to start here in the middle of the story, and that's where we are at the beginning of chapter 2. So we're going to back up just a little bit, and let me just review what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The first thing that we discussed was that the death of Christ was a sure death. That without doubt, 
Jesus was dead when he was taken down from the cross. Over 2,000 years, people have struggled with the resurrection. And that's because to admit that Jesus arose from the dead means that you also have to admit that this man named Jesus was actually divine. And so you're going to have to suffer with that problem when you try to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to do that, many people say, well, he just wasn't really dead when they put him into the tomb. Or there are lots of other excuses that people make, but that seems to be the most prevalent one, that when Jesus went into the tomb, he wasn't really dead. And the time on the cross was relatively short, according to what most crucifixions took, Jesus was there for just a short time, and so it's claimed that on the cross he became weak and he fainted and they thought that he was dead. And so when his body was placed into the coolness of the tomb, he revived and his disciples came and helped him to get out of the grave. So there wasn't really a resurrection after all. Well, that, that idea is fraught with so many problems, I really can't discuss all of them with you. But it's a ridiculous assertion. Uh, we, we would have to believe that... that the Roman soldiers, the Roman government, hundreds and hundreds perhaps of onlookers, the people that buried the body, everything that went, uh, went on with that, that they were all fooled that Jesus was actually dead. But there was no doubt that he was dead. As we read scripture, no one ever disputed the fact that Jesus was dead. Uh, the Jews were preparing for the Sabbath and they wanted Pilate to take those three men down from the crosses. They were already, uh, to, to be sure they were dead, take them down from the cross, get them down early so that we can make all the preparations that we need to make for the Sabbath day. And then when Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to claim the body of Jesus, Pilate dispatched a soldier to go and find out, you mean he's really dead? In such a short time he's dead? And you remember that it was Jesus himself who gave up his spirit. He, he set the time of his death. He gave up his spirit. And so Pilate was surprised. So he sent a soldier to find out, is he really dead? Well, the men on either side of Jesus, those thieves that were crucified with him, they weren't dead. And so they came and broke their legs in order to hasten their death. But when the soldier came to Jesus, he saw that he was already dead. And he didn't bother to break his legs. But instead, he thrust a spear up through his side that pierced his, the pericardium and the heart and the blood and the water flowed out. It wasn't the spear that killed him. It was just to make it doubly sure. Now, the apostle John, who saw that, wrote in his gospel, he said, I witnessed this. I saw what happened. And my witness is true. You can believe this. He was really dead. And the reason that John wrote that is so nobody could claim that Jesus was not dead when he was put in the tomb. Well, then we come to the next part here in verses 57 and 58. And Joseph went to beg the body for the body of Jesus. He went to Pilate. And, and Joseph was, at that point, unknown to be one of Jesus' disciples. And so he's described in the scriptures as being a secret disciple. Matthew says... He, Joseph, also himself was Jesus' disciple. And then you go to the book of John and you find out there that John adds to that he was a secret disciple. And that notation is put there that he was a secret disciple so that we'd all know that it was a disciple that claimed the body of Jesus, but the disciple that claimed it, claimed him, was not one of the eleven. Not one of the original ones who had been chosen by Jesus who walked with him for three years. Not that disciple, but a secret disciple claimed his body. 
These are, this is not the man who said, I'll never desert you like the 11 disciples did. And they did desert him. They deserted him at the trial. They deserted him at the cross. And when he was dead and ready to be buried or taken down from the cross, none of them went to claim the body of Jesus to give him a decent burial. Oh, the one who did that was Joseph of Arimathea. And he was determined that Jesus was not going to be put in a common grave or burned in the fires of the Jerusalem garbage dump. Now, can you imagine how ironic that would be? How ironic it would be that Jesus used those same fires of Jer- the Jerusalem dump as a picture of hell? How twisted would that be to Scripture? How many types would be ruined if the body of Jesus was not carefully preserved to be put in the tomb rather than put in the fires of Hinnom, the fires of Jerusalem's garbage dump? You see, God superintends all of this. He made sure that the body was taken care of. And so Joseph went to claim Jesus' body. And this is very uncommon because here it is a secret disciple who has carried out the will of the Father. A secret disciple has done what he's supposed to do when disciples that weren't secret didn't. Well, you see, the secrecy was an advantage for Joseph. Nobody knew that he was Jesus' disciple. He was as I mentioned last time, like a plant on the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council of the Jews. Nobody knew that he was a secret disciple. And that's the clout that Joseph used to get in to see Pilate. Without that, if he hadn't been a rich man, and if he hadn't been on the Jewish Sanhedrin, he never would have gotten an audience with Pilate in order to claim the body. So amazingly, we find here that God has a very special plan for Joseph His sovereignty is seen again like it is over and over and over in the lives of people that we find in the Bible. God prepared Joseph for this very moment. Well, he was saved, and because he was saved, he didn't stay a secret disciple. Nobody who's saved remains a secret disciple. And so at the very right time, God put that courage in his heart. At the very time that it was needed, the Holy Spirit moved him to overcome his fear and to go and ask Pilate for the body. And what that did, it, it meant giving up that prestige that he had. Right then, when he went to claim the body, and he spoke to Pilate, and he took that body away, that ended his association with the Jewish Sanhedrin. His power and authority was over then, but he didn't care about that because he was a true disciple of Jesus Christ, and he counts more than anything. And that's what Joseph was willing to do. And so when God used him, he amazingly set up the possibility of a bodily resurrection. Now thirdly, we looked at a scriptural fulfillment. That every part of Jesus' life from beginning to end was planned before the world was ever created. And within the triune Godhead, the Father and the Son made a covenant between them and every detail that would happen in Jesus' life and in his death and in his burial and in the resurrection, all of that was decided before Jesus ever came into the world. And along the way, while the world was waiting for Jesus to come, God revealed bits and pieces of his plan through the worship and types of the temple and the tabernacle. In types and figures, God showed what Jesus was going to do. And then you come to the Psalms, like we've just read, and there you'll find, you'll find different sayings that, about crucifixion that, and sayings that were spoken from the cross, the details of crucifixion that nobody would ever know, would even, even imagine, 
because crucifixion having, was even used at that time that those things were written. And yet we find sayings from the cross and details about the crucifixion right there in the book of Psalms. In the book of Exodus, we learn that the bones of the Passover lamb couldn't be broken. And we've read how that the bones of Jesus were not broken because he was God's lamb, God's Passover lamb. And then we read in the book of Zechariah that Jesus' side would be pierced instead. And then we come to that amazing passage in Isaiah chapter 53 where it talks about how that Jesus would be buried with the rich in his death. Now while the Bible says that, in Isaiah 53 it also talks about how he would be despised, how he was oppressed, how he was afflicted, how he was forsaken. And through all of that, and through all the hatred of the powerful authorities who crucified him, through all of that, still... He was buried with the rich in his death. No one really understood what Isaiah 53 meant until hundreds of years later when you come to a passage like this in Matthew or where the New Testament tells us that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Nobody really understood what Isaiah 53 meant until they got into the New Testament time. And then when Joseph took down the body of Jesus... He carefully prepared it for a burial as a rich man's body would be prepared. Again, even though, even though uh, Jesus lived his entire life as a, a dirt poor commoner, still he was buried in a rich man's grave. Another disciple, a secret disciple, Nicodemus came and helped him to prepare the body for burial. And there were copious amounts of very expensive ointments and perfumes that were placed on the body of Jesus. And that's very important also because the wrappings around the body and all the spices that were put on those wrappings and put around the body remained there intact when Jesus arose from the grave. And that becomes an important part of the story. Now, fourthly, this is where I want to take you today. This is our new information in the second part of the message. And I want to talk to you about a secure tomb. A few weeks ago, I... I explained the place that's called Gordon's Calvary, where most people believe is the site of the crucifixion. You go to Jerusalem today and you can visit Gordon's Calvary. And it's interesting that within walking distance of, of that place where they believe Jesus was crucified is the garden tomb where he was buried. Now, Joseph, being a rich man, had all the resources needed to hire someone to spend the many hours that were necessary to hammer out that solid rock and chisel away a place in that rock for a tomb. And not just a small place, but a place large enough that they could put the body, stretch it out, fully out, and then for people to actually go in there and be able to, to see what was in the tomb. And Joseph had all the resources to, to make that happen because he was a very rich man. And it's quite impressive when you go there to see how large that tomb is. And then you'll find that there are several other tombs that are in the area that have a track that's cut in the rock where a flat stone could be rolled up against the tomb to seal it off and keep people from getting in. And Joseph was rich enough that he could afford all of that. And that financial ability is another part of the superintendence of God to be sure that all these things happen according to the Scripture and that the tomb can be sealed. And this is what the rich would often do. They, they sealed tombs with large stones to keep out grave robbers. Well, there wasn't anybody that was going to steal anything from this tomb. Jesus didn't have any riches. And this is really the whole point of this part of it, is that the tomb was sealed for one purpose, 
And that is to keep the body from being stolen and to keep a false resurrection from being claimed. So this uh, fastidious care that I mentioned a moment ago of wrapping the body completely in those strips of linen and soaking each one with precious ointments, that was very important to proof of the resurrection. Now there are a couple of special notations about the tomb that I thought was interesting. Verse number 60 says that the tomb was new. Evidently it had just been finished and uh, obviously it had never been used before. It's a new tomb. Sometimes tombs were used over and over because after so amount of time bodies would decay or the tomb was, tombs were purposely made that way so you could open them up and put more bodies in. But it's, it's important to note that this is a new tomb where there's never been a body placed in this tomb before. And, you, and, and that's important in relation to the fact that Jesus is a king. And that's what Matthew's gospel is. This is the gospel of the Messiah King, that Jesus is that great king. So the new tomb, that, that new, that's emphasized here because Jesus is a king. Well, we know that Jesus looked nothing like a king when he was crucified. The placard over the cross did say, this is the king of the Jews. But that placard had been put up there as a mocking gesture against Jesus and the Jews by Pilate. So that was not saying nobody was convinced that Jesus was truly a king and he didn't look like a king. And so his burial in a new tomb is very significant because kings are recognized by new things that are done for them. A new tomb is something that you do for a king. Kings aren't buried with rotting corpses. So an expensive tomb, that's a place for a king. And nobody knew when this tomb was hollowed out that it would be occupied by the one who is the king of all kings. Now in ancient times, uh, a king would visit a city and a new road would be made just for him. Sometimes a new entrance into the city would be made just for the king. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the kingship of Jesus is reflected in a metaphor in that way when it says this, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, listen, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You recognize that as a prophecy about John the Baptist? And what did he do? He prepared a highway for Jesus. He prepared a highway of repentance ahead of Jesus and pointed to him as the Messiah King, the one who would take away the sins of the world. And there are dozens of these little details like that that are found throughout the Scriptures. God, God places those in so many parts of the Scripture just so you can see how much he superintends everything that takes place. And then another thing that's interesting about the tomb is the location. It was in a garden that was next to the place of crucifixion, as I mentioned. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus is the second man. That means that he is the second Adam. Adam actually means man. Jesus is the second Adam, the second man. And you think about it for a moment. Where did all the troubles of the world begin? They started in a garden, didn't they? They started there in the Garden of Eden. And isn't it strange that it's in a garden that the second Adam arose victoriously 
through a death, or by a death, from a death rather, that was caused by what the first Adam did in a garden. See, there's just things that you think about. God has amazing ways of making his points known. There's nobody that could keep track of all those details but God. So who could believe that the Bible is not absolutely supernatural? Nobody makes these things up. So Joseph of Arimathea, a very obscure character, barely mentioned in the Scripture, is one who is mightily used by God to fulfill the divine purpose. Spurgeon has a great line or great quote. He said, The cross is a wondrous magnet that draws to Jesus every man of true metal. And who would guess that Joseph was one of Jesus' disciples, and yet he was one of those that was chosen by God and drawn to the cross at the appropriate time. Well, as we look a little bit further at the tomb, I want you to notice how the all-wise God had these Jews who hated Jesus to be the instruments of proof that he did actually arise from the grave. Look at verses 62 and 63. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation... The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Now notice there it says, While he was yet alive. So they had no doubt that he was dead. Uh, These men that hatefully schemed to have Jesus crucified went to Pilate to insist that the tomb be made as secure as possible so there could be no possibility the disciples could steal the body and claim a false resurrection. And so they said, when the deceiver was alive, he said, after three days, I will arise. And that's a very interesting claim, because if you've been with us through the study, you know that at the mock trial, they claimed to have no knowledge of all of things like this. Uh, They didn't claim to believe or think that Jesus was talking about a resurrection. Do you remember that when he talked about that, they accused him that he's going to destroy the temple. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to go in there with a jackhammer, and he's going to tear everything up. But they knew from the very beginning that Jesus was talking about a resurrection. And that's the point that they didn't want to admit. So they accused him of all these other things. But that's the very first accusation that they made. He's going to destroy the temple. But it was about the resurrection and they knew it. And so how odd it is that they call him a deceiver when everything that they did up to this point was premeditated deception. So they went to Pilate and they said, you've got to do something about this. You have to do something. You've got to take extra precautions. You've got to make sure that his disciples do not come and steal the body. Guard the tomb. Do it at least for three days because that's when he said he would come out. Do it for three days and make sure that nobody gets in there to steal the body. And then they said, well, if anyone steals the body, the last deception will be worse than the first because they'll claim that he rose from, arose from the dead. Well, what did they mean by that? first deception and last deception. Well, we go back to the beginning of the week. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then as he rode in, they hailed him as the Messiah. Uh, There was an uproar, and people cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! So the first error that they're talking about is that he claimed to be the Messiah. And the people actually believed that he was the Messiah. And that's why he was able to go into the temple and to cleanse it, to throw out the money changers, and the priests could do nothing about it. And that's because the people were behind him. They said that he was the Messiah. 
And then you have to know that this didn't escape Pilate's ears, that a king had ridden into town. And so they started to play on that fear. And they, and they went to Pilate and said, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to overthrow Caesar. He's going to be the king. Pilate heard all of that. And they say, if, if they steal the body, then they'll say that he came back to life and there's going to be a real mess because people will be more influenced than ever. That's the last deception, that he arose from the dead. That this miracle of rising from the dead would be more convincing than anything that he ever did. And that's as it should be, isn't it? That's as it should be. I mean, if he comes to life, he's God, isn't he? Now, we know for sure that Jesus is God. How do we know that? Because he's not dead in the tomb. If he is alive, he must be God. If he's dead, he can't be. That's the problem that they face. It's the problem anybody faces who argues against the resurrection. Now, we look how Pilate responded in verse number 65. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. A guard had not been posted at the tomb already because Pilate had interviewed Jesus. Pilate listened to everything that he said. He wasn't worried about a claim that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He wasn't worried about anything concerning the body after Joseph claimed it. So he said to them, you have a watch. And what he's doing there is mocking them again. He says, you've got some soldiers over there at the fortress. They regularly keep peace for you, so you, you go get them and you make that tomb as sure to your satisfaction as you can. You know what he meant? He was mocking them. Pilate wasn't concerned about Jesus. He had interviewed him. He wasn't impressed enough with Jesus' claims not to crucify him. And so the thing that he's really impressed with is that the Jews are so bent out of shape and are so worried about this raving lunatic from Nazareth. And he couldn't figure out why they're so afraid of Jesus. So what he says here is that you are so pathetic. You are scared to death of this guy when he was alive, and you're a bigger chicken now that he's dead. And doesn't, doesn't that ring true today? How much does the world, is the world afraid of Jesus? The, 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 to a man, the atheist and the agnostics and the skeptics, they say he is as dead as he can be. There is no resurrection. Okay. Then why after 2,000 years are they so afraid of him? Why do they spend their every waking moment, it seems, attacking everything that he said, what he stood for, and they keep writing and they keep posturing themselves and they keep knocking themselves out to keep him in the tomb? Nothing changes. That's because Jesus has power over the whole world. At the first mention of his name or the telling of his story, people who never heard of him begin to choose sides. They drive themselves crazy trying to keep him in the tomb. Have you ever wondered why they just don't walk away from it? Why don't they just forget about it and say, oh, that's just another story? No, it consumes them. It occupies them. They can't. And the reason they can't is because he's God and you have to do something with him. Nobody that's ever heard of Jesus forgets about him. He gets stuck in the mind. He's in your brain. And either you believe him or you spend the rest of your life or going to your grave trying to keep him in the grave. So Pilate says to them, Oh, poor pitiful you, you won't let him die. You killed him and he just won't stay dead, will he? Even in the tomb he controls you. And that's what Jesus does. Tell me anybody, anywhere, anytime 
that polarize people like Jesus. If you try to suppress Jesus, you'll hear him all of the time crying from behind the rock. So they went, and they asked permission of Pilate, and they made the sepulcher sure. They got the guards, they sealed the stone. Well, how did they do that? Well, if it's today, if it was today, they would have poured concrete around it, and you'd have to have dynamite to get it open. But they actually did something that was even more powerful than sealing with concrete. They took a wax seal, and they put the impress of the Roman government upon it, and now they have the power and authority of the most powerful army in the world, the most powerful government the world had ever seen to that time, that it sealed that tomb, and there was nobody that's going to break into it. And so the soldiers are there, the seal of the Roman government is there, a heavy stone is rolled in front of it, and it's there, and nobody's going to get in there to get the body. And what did that do? It absolutely guaranteed that the only way that Jesus was going to get out of the tomb was a miracle. It's the only way. God himself, God Almighty, had to open the tomb. So do you see what he did? He set these fools up. He took those puny minds that thought they had outsmarted Jesus, outsmarted God, and he used them to make sure that nobody would ever believe that somebody just waltzed in there and stole the body. Well, you imagine the carnage that would have been around that tomb if anybody tried. Folks, if this wasn't so serious, it'd almost be comical. He arose from the grave, and what did they say? You know, somebody came in and stole the body. It was the ultimate self-deception. It was an uber, that's a modern word, I guess, an uber secure tomb. And uh, we've got two messages, I've got two messages that are coming up specifically that will deal with the lie that was told to keep him in the tomb. But we expect all of this, don't we? Uh, they, they just lived through the darkest day. They just heard about or seen, heard the ripping of the veil. They just felt an earthquake that rattled their bones. And now they deceive themselves into thinking that God, who controls all physics, all forces, and controls the cosmos itself, could not have been the one who opened that tomb. Does that tell you something about the human heart? You know, I hate to characterize anybody's theology as just plain dumb. But I'm sorry, if you think that God does not overcome the depravity of the human heart in order to bring a person to Christ, then you're out of your mind. I mean, you've been deceived. And again, this is what the Bible says about people. Listen to Romans chapter 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And so people look at all this magnificence of the creation and they say, God? What God? It's not God that made us. We were microbes and then we became monkeys and then we became men. No, poor old Carl Sagan died, met God face to face, got thrown into hell. And you think he's still saying, it's not God that made us. We made ourselves. Listen, folks, you're going to have to give an account for that. You'll have to give an account 
because of the empty tomb. You're going to have to answer for what happened at the tomb. And if you pass all that off and say it didn't happen, you're going to be sucked into the blackness of hell because of it. God says you're willfully ignorant. That it's no accident that you choose against him. What you have done, you have poured wax around the stone that's going to roll right over you. God knows better. Listen to the wisdom of J.C. Ryle. He said, They little thought what they were doing. They little thought that unwittingly they were providing the most complete evidence of the truth of Christ's coming resurrection. They were actually making it impossible to prove that there was any deception or imposition. Their seal, their guard, their precautions were all to become witnesses in a few hours that Christ had risen. They might as well have tried to stop the tides of the sea or to prevent the sun rising as to prevent Jesus coming forth from the tomb. They were taken in their own craftiness. Their own devices became instruments to show forth God's glory. Often people ask me, how can I prove the Bible is true? And I would say, here's one of the best ways. Just go to Matthew chapter 27 and Matthew chapter 28. If you can't see it there, then you're like, a, you're like an ostrich with his head in the sand and his rear end exposed to the sun. That's how dumb you have to be not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the last observation that I want to show you, number five, is a saving sepulcher. Now, we, we, don't, we don't think too much about the tomb. We sing about the power of the cross. We sing about the resurrection. I don't know that we have any songs or many songs about the power of the tomb And I hope that's changed in two sermons. But let me take you back to baptism for just a minute. In baptism, there's a picture of Jesus going into the tomb. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But there's also something else that's shown in baptism. There's another picture. So I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 6, if you would. And let's read here for just a minute. The cross itself is a, is a very powerful symbol of God's judgment against sin. And those, those messages that I preached on the darkest day, that was to show you how God looks at sin and how awful God's judgment is against sin. God poured out his wrath on Jesus, and when, when he did, Jesus took the punishment of everyone who would believe in him. And then Jesus was taken down from the cross, and he was dead. Now let's read about another tremendous picture in baptism. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And you see what Paul says about sin? He said, sin was buried with Christ. Matthew 27 tells that story that baptism shows. When we believe, we are buried with Christ, we're buried with Him, and when we rise, we rise to walk in a new life that He's given us, we walk in newness of life. Now look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the, listen, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So we have this new life in Christ, and when Jesus went into the tomb, our old life was buried with him. He died for our sins, he took our sins into the tomb, and he left them there. And those sins were put there and left there never to be remembered again. 
And so if you trust Jesus, there is no sin that's ever going to come back on you. But did you know that there are billions who profess a type of Christianity that says their sins are not dead and buried? That they think that when they die, God's going to drudge up all of those old sins and they're going to have to go to purgatory and spend some time there in punishment trying to get rid of their sins. Well, it's just like the tomb opened up and out came Jesus dragging a big bag of sin behind him. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't bring any sins out of the tomb with him. He was resurrected himself and nothing else came out. Just him. The sins were left in the tomb. But these people say, not so. But this is what happened. When the tomb opened, the daylight of the resurrection dissolved every one of those sins. And they aren't there. And because they aren't there, God has no reason to judge you. God has no reason to condemn you, no reason to punish you. That's what faith in Christ does. It buries your sins forever so they're never seen again. I know some of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that, before you go to your grave, make sure that you do. At least one time, read The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the story, it's about a man named Christian. And it's about his search for salvation... And, and I can't explain it all right now, but let me just tell you about a part that's particularly moving. In the story, sin is described as a, as a huge load that Christian carries around on his back. And that weight is so oppressive that all that he ever wants to do is try to get rid of that weight. It was, it was bothering him and burdening him, burdening him so bad that he decided to leave his home. And he decided to leave his family and just go somewhere, find somewhere to have this great burden, this burden that represents sin, have that all taken off of his back. And so uh, John Bunyan tells the story. And I want you to, to listen to what Bunyan says. He says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that that wall was called, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulchre. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Friends, that's the power, the saving power of the of the tomb. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. They roll off at the cross and then they roll to the tomb where they fall in. And never again are you going to see those burdens. They're lifted, gone. They're buried in the depths of the tomb. Or as Bunyan said, I saw it no more. So Joseph buried the sinless body of Jesus. He put it in his own new tomb. And when he was placed in that tomb, our sins were buried with him. Again, only Christ was resurrected, not our sins. And thank God for that. Thank God for the cross. Thank God for the resurrection. But don't you ever forget to also thank God for the tomb. Well, maybe you're still carrying a, around a weight of sin on your back. Well, here's the advice. Go to the cross. Go to the cross of Christ. Kneel before it. And those burdens will fall off and they'll roll all the way into the tomb. And you'll never see them again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for your word. What a great story that we've studied today. How we're so blessed that upon our faith in Jesus Christ that all of our burdens are lifted, all of our sins are taken away. And you make this point in scriptures about the tomb so that we understand very clearly that what should be buried is buried and stays buried. And what should come out did come out. And that was Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we shall also live. And without all of those sins that have weighed us down so heavily. We look for heaven. We look for Jesus to come and take us there where there is no sin. Where we live without the darkness and the sorrows and the hardships of this life. Lord, I just pray that you'd open someone's heart to the gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.